Okay, so let's start psych. So psych and behavioral sciences. The first thing here talks about the canoids, right? The canoids. This is something that we use for medication non-adherence. Crazy homeless people. Medication non-adherence, right? In schizophrenia, right? In schizophrenia. So these will be people that they go out of the hospital, their symptoms come back. When they come into the hospital, you put them on medication, their psychosis disappears, right? Whenever you see stuff like this, go ahead and put these people on haloperidol, they can't eat. Put these people on haloperidol, they can't eat. It's an IM, like a depot formulation. So it's slowly released, right? Putting the arm is slowly released, slowly released, slowly released. Okay. Now, what are some indications for electroconvulsive therapy? That's what I mean by ECT. Depression, right? That's what I mean by ECT, right? That's what I mean by ECT, right? So electroconvulsive therapy. Remember, electroconvulsive therapy, the big thing with it is you can use it on MDM exams, right? For what I call acute psych. Basically, by acute psych, I mean this person's condition. You need to fix it like now, right? If not, the person is going to die. Right? So let's say, for example, a person has major depressive disorder and they are actively suicidal. Right? Like they are actively, they're just trying to try many things to kill themselves, or they are not eating. Right? Or if a person has catatonia, all these things respond beautifully to electroconvulsive therapy. The primary complication of ECT is amnesia. These people can have both anti-grade and retrograde amnesia. They can have both anti-grade and retrograde amnesia. But usually come, their memories will come back after a while. Now, question three and four talks about GABA-based agents and their rescue. Well, remember we have barbiturates, right? We have barbiturates. And then we have benzodiazepines. Right? We have barbiturates, we have benzodiazepines, and then we have Z-drugs. Those Z-drugs are things like Zopidem, right? Zopidem, Zaleplon, and Ezopiclon. So Zopidem, Zaleplon, and Ezopiclon. They are drugs for insomnia. So how do barbiturates work? Remember, barbiturates are GABA agonists. Right? <laughs> barbiturates are GABA agonists. What exactly do they do? They increase the duration of opening of GABA receptors. Remember, GABA receptors are chloride channels. GABA receptors are chloride channels, right? Benzos, they actually also are GABA agonists. They're also GABA agonists, right? And the thing they do is they increase the frequency of opening of GABA receptors. Right? And then Z drugs, they are GABA A receptor agonists. So they basically work like benzos in a sense, but they bind like a different part of the receptor. Right? So the thing is, barbiturates, there is no rescue if, because all these things cause respiratory depression. There's no rescue if you overdose on them. There's no rescue agent for barbiturates. There's no rescue agent. You need to intubate the person and pray. That's it. Those are your only options intubate and pray. Right? Now, Benzos, 
and Z drugs, they actually have the same reversal agent. You reverse these drugs with flomazenia. Flomazenia, right? Flomazenia is the GABA receptor antagonist that used to reverse benzos, right? Used to reverse benzos. Remember, for these people, you can give them flomazenia and throw them into seizures because you'll throw them from being overdose to withdrawing by giving the reversal agent, right? So sometimes if you reverse too hard and then they start seizing, you're going to give them benzos back to calm them down, right? That's the scenario that definitely has popped up on, on in game exams, right? Oh, so you can reverse the, oh. you can reverse the overdose yeah. <laughs> If they start withdrawing and start having seizures, give them benzos, right? To snap them back, basically. Okay, now buspirin. Buspirin is a second line agent for generalized anxiety disorder. How does buspirin work? It's high yield to know that buspirin is a partial agonist. Buspirin is a partial agonist at serotonin 5-HT 1A receptors. Is a partial agonist at serotonin 5-HT 1A receptors. Now, biostats. What's the primary MDME disadvantage associated with relative risk reduction? Well, let's test it out here. Remember yesterday I said that absolute risk reduction is a difference in risks. Relative risk reduction is a ratio of risks, right? So let's say we have two kinds of studies, right? One, one thing, you know, the risk there is 40%. The risk in the other study is 80% of, you know, some bad outcome. And then, let's also write the same studies again, 40% and 80%, right? So, let me throw this to the audience. For this first part of the graph, what is that absolute risk reduction? 40%. Oh, sorry. Let's do 4% on this side and 8% on this side. Okay, so for this 40%, 80% uh, groups, what is the absolute risk reduction for this first column? Remember, the absolute risk reduction is the difference of risks. It's 40%. Go <coughs> it's 40%. What is the relative risk reduction here? 50%. Remember, relative risk reduction is a ratio of risks. It's 50%, right? It's 50%, right? 40% over 80% is one half, which is like 0.5, right? Okay. Now, if you're comparing these studies where, oh, one, the risk is 4%, the other risk is 8%, what's the absolute risk reduction? 4%. Here. 4%. Again, the difference in risk is 4%. What's the relative risk reduction? 50%. It's 50% as well, right? It's also 50%. So do you see that relative risk reduction can really obscure the truth, right? It can really obscure the truth because in this eight to four percent de decrease is not that big compared to like an eighty percent to a forty percent decrease. So to ameliorate this, I mean, I mean, like basically not have this problem. Let's put it that way. You always want to use the absolute risk reduction as much as is possible, right? Although obviously you still know, need to know how to calculate relative risk reduction. Okay. Question 8 says we have a 91-year-old male who has been hospitalized for hypertensive emergencies five times over the past 15 months. He lives alone and cooks his own meals, but is unable to take his medications regularly. What is the next best step in management? 
And everybody sees stuff like this, right? I mean, this guy's doing pretty well, right? But again, you need some help. For these people, you're going to place them in legal guardianship on MBM exams. You're going to place them in legal guardianship. Right? You're going to place them in legal guardianship on MBM exams. Now, how do we treat acute mania? If a person is acutely manic, you're going to treat them with an antipsychotic. It doesn't matter which one you use. You're going to treat them with an antipsychotic. Again, don't make the mistake of giving a benzo. Don't make the mistake of giving a benzo. If a person is acutely manic, the drug of choice for calming them down is an antipsychotic, not a benzodiazepine. Okay. Now, question 10 and 11 says, patient on a mood stabilizer has to wake up 10 times a night to urinate. Right now, this person is on a mood stabilizer. And you're waking up 10 times a night to urinate. Well, what do they have? Let's see in the chat box. What do these people have? Diabetes and symptoms from what drug? <laughs> lithium. Very good. Diabetes and symptoms from lithium. Right? So we need to go back to some renal ph uh, physiology, right? To understand this, right? And the treatment. If you remember the principal cell of the collecting doctor, this is the principal cell, right? Remember, let's say this is the urine side and this is the blood side, right? So the urine side, we know that Sodium comes in through the inner channel, right? Potassium leaves through the Ronke channel. Then we have the vasopressing V2 receptor, right? That ADH acts on so that you can put aquaporin channels. Aquaporin. Aquaporin channels to reabsorb water, right? To reabsorb water. So that's how the principal cell works. It's just one thing I want to uh, really show like show off here. Right? So the thing is, lithium, if you remember from general chemistry from college, right, or maybe years ago for some of you, right? Sodium and lithium are both in group one of the periodic table, right? So if sodium can come in here, you better believe lithium can. Lithium is even smaller than sodium. So lithium comes in through this inner channel, right? And it then messes up the signaling cascade of the vasopressin to V2 receptor. So you're not able to respond to ADH. That's how lithium causes nephrogenic diabetes insipidus. So the way we treat the nephrogenic diastasis of lithium use is we can try to block this inner channel. So we block this inner channel by giving potassium sparing diuretics like amyloride or triamterine, right? Like amyloride or triamterine like amyloride or triamterine, right? Okay, so hopefully this makes sense. So we're going to erase this so we can move on up. Okay, so question 12 here um, says, we have a patient on a motor stabilizer that has acute onset right upper quadrant pain. We've talked about this already. And an EST, ELT in the thousands, right? Whenever you see stuff like this, this person, this person is taking valproic acid. And valproic acid is very hepatotoxic, right? Question 13 says, major depressive disorder treatment that can be stopped abruptly with no taper, right? So this is going to be fluoxetine. The thing is, fluoxetine has metabolites that have a very long half-life. has metabolites that have a very long half-life. Right? So there's no risk of SSRI discontinuation syndrome with fluoxetine. 
Now, what are some things we use SSRIs for? SSRIs, is their first line for many things on MBNE exams, right? Their first line for major depressive disorder, right? Their first line for generalized anxiety disorder, right? Their first line for bulimia, right? Their first line for PTSD, right? Their first line for premenstrual syndrome, right? Their first line for many, many things, right? They're also first line for premature ejaculation, right? So premature ejaculation, right? Because remember, SSRIs, they cause sexual dysfunction, right? So if a person has sexual hyperfunction, so let's say like a guy, right? The moment he inserts into a woman, right? Or let's say the moment he gets sexually stimulated, he just starts spewing stuff all over the place within like 30 seconds, right? That's premature ejaculation. You can kind of call him back a little bit, just right? Fire. Like giving an SSR, right? Not. So premature ejaculation. <laughs> now, question 17 says, fewest SSRI squibbles. Basically, what I mean is the SSRIs that have the best safety profile, right? They have the fewest side effects. If you see this, I want you to think about citalopram. Citalopram or and e-citalopram. So citalopram and e-citalopram, right? And then the SSRI that's safe in pregnancy, the best in pregnancy is sexually. You see a pregnant woman that needs an SSRI, think sexually, right? The one that's contraindicated in pregnancy is paroxetine. Paroxetine has been associated with pulmonary hypertension in the fetus, right? It's been associated with pulmonary hypertension in the fetus, right? So we try to avoid paroxetine in pregnant women. Now, tricyclic antidepressants and EKGs, we've talked about this, right? Remember, we said that you'll see a white QRS, right? We talked about this early yesterday. Now, what's the tricyclic antidepressant we use for treating OCD, right? It actually starts with a C, clomipramine. Clomipramine is a second-line agent for treating OCD. By the way, so put option G here. OCD, first-line treatment for OCD, is an SSRI, okay? Is an SSRI, first-line pharmacologic therapy. Now, question 20 says, drug of choice in major depressive disorder in a terminally ill patient with a life expectancy of four weeks. If a person has major depressive disorder, and they're going to be dead in a few weeks. We're not going to be doing SSRIs. We're not going to be doing CBT, right? We're going to use methylphenidate for these people, right? We're going to use methylphenidate for these people. Okay, now 21 to 23. It says, given the following scenarios, what is the most likely diagnostic error, right? So let's talk about these. So the first one says, I've seen a similar presentation in the past. So the current diagnosis must be the same as the previous diagnosis. So let's say you're like, oh, you know, I've seen this thing before. I've seen pancreatitis before. So this person could be with epigastric pain. I'm not even going to work them out. They have pancreatitis. <laughs> I wish you all the best. This is something that kills people in healthcare, right? Where like, you're like, well, I've seen this before. And then you basically leave your thinking out the door. <laughs> I wish you all the best. I'm sure there is some lawyer that is going to have a great time taking your license and seeing you into the ground, right? This is something called the availability heuristic availability heuristic now the next one says a gastroenterologist at an outside hospital has made a diagnosis of inflammatory bowel disease so that 
must be the diagnosis. Ooh. Right? So someone has said someone, some higher authority has said someone, you're like, oh, I trust you, gastroenterologist, you're the best thing. No, right? You still have to think. Again, as a yeah, physician, you're supposed to think, you're not supposed to rely on others to think for you. Exactly. Right? Seriously. This is something called anchoring bias. Here's an example of anchoring bias. <laughs> now, question 24 says seizures with SSRIs. Why will people have seizures with SSRIs, right? That's because of SIDH. SIDH, I mean, SSRIs are the most common drug cause of SIDH. I'll say that again. SSRIs are the most common drug cause of SIDH, right? So those seizures are from hyponatremia, right? Those seizures are from hyponatremia. Now, question 25 says, hyperreflexia myoclonus with major depressive disorder treatment. We talked about this yesterday. This is serotonin syndrome. This is serotonin syndrome. 26, patient with flu-like symptoms two days after stopping paroxetine. So you abruptly stopped an SSRI. Well, what's happening here? This person has SSRI discontinuation. SSRI discontinuation syndrome. So how do you fix SSRI discontinuation syndrome? Restart these people on their old dose. Restart them on their old dose of SSRI, right? And then taper it over time. Taper over a few weeks. Now, flooding versus systematic desensitization. Right? These are two ways of treating phobias. Flooding is where you expose the person just head on to a big chunk of the stimulus. Let's say they're afraid of snakes. You take them to a home, right, that is filled with snakes. You open the door, you throw them in and close the door and run away. Right? They'll be like, hey, 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 hey. They will shout, yell, rave for six or so hours. After a while, they'll probably start petting the snakes. They will just give up the will to fight. That's what's called flooding. Systematic desensitization is more. You watch a movie on snakes. I buy you a magazine on snakes. I take you to a zoo where you see snakes. I'm showing you graded increases in exposure to that stimulus. Right? Systematic desensitization is slower but it's more effective in the long run, right? The risk of relapse is low. Flooding is faster, but there is a high risk of relapse. There's a high risk of relapse. There's a high risk of relapse. Now, 28 says, treating the ER slashed wrist. Right? So you see, a, uh, it's going to be a woman, right? It's going to be a woman that slashes her wrist, has a lot of relationship problems, right? It's going to be borderline personality disorder. Right, borderline. And how do we treat borderline on MBNEs? We treat it with a kind of CBT called dialectical. Dialectical, right? That's an L. Dialectical behavioral therapy. Dialectical behavioral therapy. Now, question 29 says reducing the risk of suicide in a patient that hears voices and does not want to leave his room, right? So, what is the antipsychotic that has been shown to reduce suicide risk? That's actually going to be clozapine. It actually does reduce the risk of suicide. The only other drug in all of psychiatry that has been shown to reduce suicide risk is lithium. Lithium and clozapine are the only drugs in all of psychiatry that have any mortality benefit. Okay, let's do this question and then we'll take a break. So, the four dopaminergic pathways. Right? So, remember, there are four dopaminergic pathways, right? We know that there's the tubero infundibula tuberoinfundibular pathway, right? And then there's the nigro 
striatal pathway, and then there is the mesolimbic pathway, and then there is the mesocortical pathway. Now I'm going to pick my frame of reference. Look at what my frame of reference is, how they are affected by low dopamine. Because think about it, low dopamine is what we accomplish when you take an antipsychotic. So basically, this is what will happen in these pathways when you take an antipsychotic. We know the tuberary fundibular pathway controls prolactin, right? So when you have low dopamine in that pathway, when you block that pathway, you're going to have an increase in prolactin. You're going to have hyperprolactinemia, right? So that can cause like an echomastia, galactorrhea, infertility, amenorrhea, right? We've talked about this already. Now, if you block the lingostriatal pathway, that's how you get those extrapyramidal side effects. We'll talk about those when we come back from our break, right? But that's how you get those extrapyramidal side effects. Now, the mesolimbic pathway, when you block the dopamine receptors, right, you actually improve the positive symptoms. You improve the positive, so plus VE means positive. You're actually improving the positive symptoms of schizophrenia. But, the meso, so this is the pathway that controls your positive symptoms. The mesocortical pathway, if you actually block it, you actually worsen the negative symptoms of schizophrenia. Right? Because remember, people that have schizophrenia, they're usually pretty docile. But then if you notice, after you give them an antipsychotic, they become even more docile. They're like, they're like mute, they don't say anything, right? That thing you're seeing is actually a worsening of their negative symptoms by way of the antipsychotic, especially those typical antipsychotics that you give them. The atypical antipsychotics, like the second generation, they are much better at treating negative symptoms than the typical antipsychotics. Okay, so let me go ahead and take people's questions. So, antipsychotic side effects. Antipsychotic side effects. All right. Okay. So, again, the thing is, all the antipsychotics, they can cause all these side effects we've pretty much talked about. But there are some specific ones your friends at DMB may expect you to know. Right? So, like amenorrhea is something you're going to see with risperidone. Right? Because risperidone, of all the antipsychotics, it has the strongest association with hyperprolactinemia. Right? Now, avoiding diabetes, right? For you already have a metabolic disease, it's maybe not the best idea in the world to be taking olanzapine, right? Because we all know that olanzapine, right? We all know that olanzapine, right, causes the metabolic syndrome, causes people to be obese. Now, for whatever reason, olanzapine is also associated with people having lots and lots of faults. Just causes a pretty powerful sedation. Now, neutropenic fever, right? We've talked about this with clozapine already, right? Clozapine, right? And clozapine can also cause myocarditis, which can lead to heart failure, right? So we need to be, you know, watch out for that. Now, trisadaquant is something you see with zeprasidone. Zeprasidone, of all the antipsychotics, I think this is the drug that's called geodon in hospitals, of all the antipsychotics is the one that prolongs the QT interval the most, Right? So it can cause trosadopoint. Talked about trosadopoint yesterday. Our question 34 talks about altered mental status, fever, high blood pressure. And the patient who was recently placed on a drug regimen for diabetic gastroparesis, right? We kind of talked about 
drug-induced Parkinsonism yesterday. Right? Remember, diabetic gastroparesis, one drug we can use for it is metoclopramide, right? Metoclopramide. So this metoclopramide is basically is causing neuroleptic malignant syndrome in this patient. Again, the way you tell NMS apart from malignant hyperthermia is your exposure. If you're exposed to your neuroleptic, you have NMS. If you were exposed, if you were intubated, malignant hyperthermia, right? And the way you treat malignant hyperthermia, again, we talked about this yesterday, I believe, is with dantrolene. Dantrolene. Now, question 35 says, extrapyramidal side effects and treatment strategies, right? So let's talk about some of these extrapyramidal side effects. Remember, this is from blockade of the migrostriatal pathway, right? From blockade of the migrostriatal pathway. Psyche is, you know, relatively easy. So I feel like at least, that's why I put it at the end, when people's brains are tired, you know, they can still you know, acquire information. So sustained abnormal posturing, right? That's acute dystonia, right? That's acute dystonia, right? That's acute dystonia. Now remember, acute dystonia, we typically uh, uh, treat this first line with diphenhydramine. Diphenhydramine is the first line agent on MBMEs for acute dystonia, right? But if you don't see that as an answer, you can proceed to benzotropine. Benzotropine is a second line agent, it's an anticholinergic agent, right? Well, remember, diphenhydramine is an antihistamine that has very powerful anticholinergic activity. Now, uh, motor restlessness, right? This is akathisia, right? This is akathisia. Remember, akathisia, right? So these people, they can't stay in one place. They keep moving from place to place, right? Akathisia, we treat it with propranolol. Propranolol is first line, right? But if you don't see that as an answer, or let's say the person has a contraindication to propranolol. Let's say, for example, they have like reactive airway disease. You can give them a benzodiazepine, right, for this. Now, what's the most dangerous complication of the motor restlessness, right? So what is the most dangerous complication of akathisia? This is something that, Again, many people don't care about, it's very high yield to know for the exam, is suicide. Many times, if you see a person commit suicide after they start an antipsychotic, it's usually in that akathisic phase, right? Very high yield to know that. Now, Cog William, right? This is Parkinsonism, right? This is Parkinsonism. Parkinsonism, right? And Parkinsonism, how do we treat it? Well, we can either use benzotropine, right? But one other thing you can also use is you can actually use a dopamine agonist, right? You can use a dopamine agonist, like bromocryptine. You can use bromocryptine, right? Or carbergoline, right? So you can use bromocryptine or carbergoline. And then you see these stereotypical mouth movements, you know, two years after a person has been placed on an antipsychotic, I want you to think of tardive dyskinesia, right? This person has tard tardive dyskinesia. Tardy means late, right? So this is a late thing. It shows up late, right? And we treat this with valbenazine. We treat this with a drug known as valbenazine on MBME exams, right? We treat this with, with valbenazine. Now, question 36 says, angry, irritable, argumentative with the instructors, breaks rules, right? Breaks rules. So you see all these things, right? We see there is no element of violence. We see there is no element of uh, crime, right? This is just oppositional defiant disorder, right? Oppositional defiant disorder, right? Oppositional defiant disorder. 
Now, question 37 says B and E, right? That's breaking an entry. This is the person is a criminal, yeah, right? Yeah. For sex. So these people rape other people, right? Crawl to a neighbor's dog, right? Microwave the cat, oh, right? Dog. You see, like, weird stuff like that, right? This person has conduct disorder. This person has conduct disorder, right? And remember, once you go past the age of 18, conduct disorder becomes antisocial personality disorder, right? And psychiatric disorders, it's very high yield to know their neuroanatomical relationships. The MDMA, they love to test that stuff, right? So remember these people, if you check their CSF, if you check their CSF, they actually have low levels of serotonin, low levels of serotonin in their CSF. Now, question 38 says, feature the 11-year-old boy, right? This is ADHD, right? This is ADHD. Remember, ADHD, the neuroanatomical association I want to keep in mind is that these people have decreased activity of a part of the brain called the prefrontal cortex. They have decreased activity of a part of the brain called the prefrontal cortex, right? And remember, ADHD actually has an association with a person having a, a fragile X syndrome. Fragile X syndrome has a very strong association, right, with ADHD, right? It's one of the most common neuropsych disorders in people with fragile X. Now, what's the first-line treatment for ADHD? What is the first-line treatment for ADHD? Remember, the first-line treatment is going to be a stimulant, right? It's going to be a stimulant like methylphenidate, right? Methylphenidate. Methylphenidate, right? Or a drug called dextroamphetamine, right? So methylphenidate or dextroamphetamine. Now, a second-line agent is going to be a drug. It's basically an SNRI. But this is the only drug you can use for this purpose. You can use any other SNRI. Here, you can substitute any. Atomoxetine. You can use atomoxetine. Atomoxetine. Then, third-line treatment, right? It's actually going to be an alpha-2 agonist. An alpha-2 agonist, right? So something like clonidine. Clonidine or one facet. Clonidine or guanfacin. That's how you treat ADHD on MDMA exams. Now, question 39. This person does not respond to social interactions or eye contact, fixated interests, right? This is autism spectrum disorder, right? This person is on a spectrum, right? So this is autism spectrum. Now, question 40 and 41 talks about the two egos, right? The two egos. So remember, there is such a thing as ego dystonic. Ego dystonic. And then there's such a thing as ego syntonic. So ego dystonic means you're doing irrational things and you recognize it's irrational, right? Like for example, a person that has obsessive compulsive disorder, they know that those repetitive behaviors are irrational, right? They recognize it. It's ego dystonic. Ego syntonic is you're doing something crazy. Don't see anything wrong with that, right? So let's say every month you do 50,000 anti cards. That's ridiculous. Right? That's crazy. You can do much less and still get like almost like a perfect score in the USMLEs, right? So that's OCPD. OCPD, we are perfectionists, but you don't see anything wrong with what you're doing, right? So that's why that's that's a ego centric. Now, question forty-two, right? Let's talk about some of these personality disorders. Question forty-two says holds grudges, suspects spousal infidelity. Are you an enemy or friend? Right? This person distrusts everyone, right? This is paranoid personality disorder, right? Question 43 says, 
lacks close friends, believes in the occult, yellow pants with red shirt, right? This is schizotypal. They will try to trick you on the exam and say, oh, he's a loner, right? The reason this person is a loner is that they are weird. So no one wants to hang out with them, right? They're like just very bizarre, right? Person who has yellow pants and red shirts, right? Mm, nothing wrong with that, but it's a little weird, right? Just put it, put it out there. Okay. Now, 44 says emotionally cold. Same reaction to praise or criticism. Not interested in sex. That's a fear. That's a first. Love solitude, right? If you see all these things, don't you think of schizo, right? These people, they are true loners. These are people that like working from home. COVID-19 is like a bonanza for these people. They are like, oh, yes. I have to see human beings again. They'll put everyone on Zoom forever. Okay. Question 45 says, impulsive, intense relationships, radio nerve damage. So these are wrist slashers, right? This is borderline, right? This is borderline, right? Remember, these people use splitting as a defense mechanism, right? They use splitting. You're either all good or bad, right? 46 says, requires admiration. Lacks empathy, sense of entitlement, right? This person, again, you don't see any violence, right? Well, again, these people want to always be first in line. They want everyone to worship them, right? These are narcissists, right? This is a narcissist, right? So narcissistic, right? Oh, I spelled out right. Narcissistic. That's mm -hmm. it, right? Okay. Now, remorseless, disobeys the law, deceitful. You see crime, right? This is going to be antisocial. Personality disorder, right? Antisocial personality disorder, right? Antisocial personality disorder. Okay. Okay. So I'm going to erase this. And we'll go on. Okay. So question 33 says, mm -hmm. center of attention, seductive, theatrical, right? We all know this, right? This is histrionic, right? These people are always dramatic, right? If you watch any kind of Hollywood or entertainment television, you see these people all the time, right? Instead of saying, you know, talking like normal people, like, ah, they're like, ah, right? Everything is like super dramatic with these people, right? That's his trend. Now, 49 says, afraid of social criticism, does not take risks, feels inferior to others, right? These are people that are avoidant, right? They are avoidant. Now, stubborn, rule-oriented, miserly, perfectionistic. This person does not believe in leisure, right? Sounds like a med student, right? This person doesn't believe in leisure, yeah. right? This is OCPD, right? Obsessive compulsive personality disorder, right? Sounds like a person studying for the US yeah, Okay. Question 51. Needs reassurance for every decision. This person has problems initiating projects, right? This person needs urgent companionship. They are always dependent on their spouse for every single thing, right? This is dependent. This is dependent personality <laughs> disorder. Now, question, a few questions. You may see the word ED by then. ED doesn't mean erectile dysfunction. It means eating disorder. Okay? So, 52. Bone and HPG axis problems in a supermodel. We've talked about this, right? We said these people have hypogonadotropic hypogonadism, right? Because they're not eating, the body's like, uh, if we don't have enough food for, for you... They're going to be doing that for another human being. So they'll shut down the HPG axis. So these people, they tend to have decreased bone mineral density, right? So they generally tend to have a high risk of osteoporosis. That's one of the most important health hazards with being, a, with, being a, with having like anorexia, for example, right? And again, the big thing about admitting these people to the hospital 
is if they are hemodynamically unstable. That's the big thing you want to keep in mind. They're hypotensive, they're very bradycardic, they're wasting away. You need to admit these people to the hospital involuntarily if you need to, right? Now, what if you start feeding them and they die? We talked about this yesterday, right? We said, what is the most common cause of death in refeeding syndrome? We talked about this, right? We said that this was hypophosphatemia because insulin will drive phosphate into cells. So there's no ATB available for the heart. So they'll get an arrhythmia and die. Now, question 54 says, what if a person has compensation, right? Because these two disorders, they are very close, but there's a difference. So if you see a person, basically, your BMI has to be less than 18.5 to have anorexia. That's a given, right? Now, if your BMI is over 18.5 and you have compensatory behavior, that is bulimia nervosa. That is bulimia. But if you see a person that is over 18.5 BMI and they don't do any compensatory anything, they don't fast, they don't exercise, they don't take laxatives, that is what defines binge eating disorder. Binge eating disorder. That is what defines binge eating disorder. Okay. Now, question 55, right? What is the antidepressant to avoid in people that have these eating disorders? Remember, these people can have electrolyte abnormalities. And those electrolyte abnormalities can cause them to start seizing, right? So you want to avoid antidepressants that cause seizures in these people, right? You want to avoid the norepinephrine dopamine reuptake inhibitors, like bupropion, right? The NDRIs like bupropion. The NDRIs like, like bupropion, right? Like bupropion. You want to avoid that, right? Because it lowers the seizure threshold. Although bupropion is not all that bad, right? Remember, bupropion causes weight loss. So it's a great drug from that perspective, right? It has no sexual side effects. No sexual side effects, right? It has no sexual side effects, right? And remember, it's associated with smoking cessation. It's really good. For people that are depressed and smoke, right? The only thing is that it lowers the seizure threshold. So that's kind of a problem. Now, what is the best CBT for anorexia on MBM exams, right? What is the CBT that works for these people? This is actually very, very high to know because it's something you would never imagine. It's family therapy. Family therapy. In fact, let me tell you another thing you use family therapy for. If you see a question, an MBM question, and there are so many problems between family members. They're always quarreling. They're always on each other's, on each other's uh, nerves. Family therapy is also good for that on MBN exams. That's important to know. So we use it for anorexia. We use it for just a dysfunctional family. If you say a dysfunctional family, not an MBN question, family therapy is what you have to do. Okay. Don't worry. You'll be like, ooh, the vine is no high yield. Then you're taking it to someone, you're like, gee, where did this come from, right? So that's something I definitely know if I, if I were you. Now, what is the best antidepressant for anorexia? It's going to be mirtazapine. Mer, let me spell it better. Mirtazapine. Mirtazapine, right? Remember, mirtazapine is an alpha-2 blocker, right? But being an alpha-2 blocker, it causes weight gain. It increases your appetite. So because of those properties, it's really good for anorexia. It encourages them to eat, right? Now, what's the antidepressant for bulimia? For bulimia, remember we said SSRIs. A first line for, for bulimia. Now, question 56 says, vomiting versus diarrhea by electrolytes. How do we tell vomiting as the cause of a person's problem versus diarrhea, right? All you need to do is look at the acid-base status. Think about it. If you're puking, if you're puking, puking, puking. You're puking acid, right? So people that use vomiting as their method of, you know, 
losing weight, right? They're going to have a metabolic alkalosis, right? But people that use diarrhea as their method of losing weight, right? If you have diarrhea, you're pooping a lot. The colon produces a lot of bicarb. So these people are going to have a metabolic acidosis. So just look at the bicarb. Bicarb high in vomiting, bicarb low in diarrhea. They'll give you many other labs, but really those are the things you're, you're really looking for that I've mentioned. Now, question 57 says, again, uh, eating disorder, sudden onset, severe chest pain with pneumomediastinum, right? So you see stuff like this, right? And a person has an eating disorder. Let's say they've reached very hard and they have pneumomediastinum. And I want you to think of Berhaf syndrome. I want you to think of Berhaf syndrome. You've pretty much ruptured the esophagus, right? You've ruptured the esophagus. Now, 58 says major depressive disorder and EEGs. What are the classic EEG findings in people that have major depressive disorder? Remember, these people have decreased REM sleep latency. These people have decreased REM sleep latency, right? And they have increased REM sleep. They spend a lot of time in REM sleep, a lot of time in REM sleep. Now, question 59 says irrepressible. And actually, this is the same thing you find in people that have narcolepsy as well. This is the same thing you find in people that have narcolepsy, right? Same thing you find in people that have narcolepsy, right? So irrepressible need to sleep, again, is narcolepsy. We've talked about this a lot, right? Remember, narcolepsy is a, is a sleep disorder. Like most other sleep disorders, it's going to be diagnosed with a sleep study, with polysomnography, right? With polysomnography. Now, the big thing to know with narcolepsy is if you check these people's CSF, you will actually find increased levels of the drug, I mean, of the protein. <clears throat> sorry, decreased levels of the protein orexin, right? Orexin is also called hypocretin 1 on MBM exams, right? Hypocretin 1 on MBM exams. They have low levels of orexin, which is also called hypocretin 1. Okay. Question 60. Insomnia with frequent urge to move legs at night. Right? So these people, they always have to move around, move around, move around, right? If you see this, right, this is restless leg syndrome, right? Restless legs syndrome, right? This person has restless leg syndrome. So remember, restless leg syndrome, one higher thing to know about it is that how do we treat this? How do we treat this disorder? Remember, you can use a dopamine agonist, Right? A dopamine agonist like Pramipexol. You can use Pramipexol, right? Or Ropinirol, right? Pramipexol or Ropinirol, right? Pramipexol or Ropinirol. But one new kid on the block, our friends at the MBMEs care about, is you can also use a specific barbiturate. You can use every barbiturate. There's a very specific one. And either one is first line. That, that's totally fine. And it's called Primido. You can see why the MBME likes this, because it doesn't sound like a barbiturate at all, but it's a barbiturate. It doesn't have barbitol in the knee, right? So that's why they love this one a lot. So I definitely know this if I read you, right? Now, one thing I want to say about narcolepsy, I just want to mention this, is sometimes in narcolepsy, they have this thing that happens where when they show strong emotion, they fall over, right? So let's say they're like, so imagine, let's say I'm like, <laughs> And then I fall asleep, right? That is something called cataplexy. Cataplexy 
is actually treated with something called sodium oxidate. Na, right? That's the term for sodium, right? You treat it with a drug called sodium oxidate, right? Sodium oxidate. Oxidate, O-X-Y-B-A-T-E. Sodium oxidate. I just put the chemical symbol of sodium. Okay. Now, also, how do we treat narcolepsy in general? Well, we tell these people to take scheduled naps, right? But the thing is, we can also use a stimulant. We can also use a stimulant to treat narcolepsy. What's the stimulant? You can use drugs like modafinil, right? You can use drugs like modafinil, right? And you can also use dextroamphetamine, right? You can use modafinil. We can also use dextroamphetamine, right? Dextroamphetamine. That's totally fine. Okay, back to question 61. So complex modal behaviors during sleep, right? This is easy, right? So this is REM sleep behavior disorder, right? REM sleep behavior, REM sleep behavior disorder. Now question 62 says, outside observer to one's thoughts, no recollection of a traumatic event, right? So this person, they feel like they're just like, staring down at their lives, right? This is depersonalization disorder, right? Depersonalization disorder, right? Now, question 63 says, high anxiety about leg pain with a negative workout, right? So this person actually has a symptom, right? They have an actual symptom, but they are blowing it out of proportion. And if you see this, I want you to think of Somatic symptom disorder. Somatic symptom disorder. Disorder. Now contrast this with a close cousin. Look at 64, right? So this person is preoccupied with the fear of having hypertension despite multiple normal blood pressure checks. You see this person has nothing. They don't have any actual symptom, but they think they have all these problems, right? So that's how you differentiate 63 from 64. 63, they have a natural problem. They're blowing it out of proportion. 64, there's nothing going on, but they just imagine they have all these issues, right? That's illness, anxiety disorder. Illness, anxiety disorder. Illness, anxiety disorder, right? Now, question 65 says pain, pain prick, fine touch loss. In the left lower extremity, pain, pain prick, and fine touch loss in the left lower extremity. And this person has a cavalier attitude during the physical exam. Cavalier just means don't care, right? And the thing is, if you look at this, this makes no sense. If you have a spinal cord problem, your pain and temperature issues should be in a contralateral extremity compared with your fine touch issues. So when you're looking at questions, you're like, huh, these neurologic deficits make no sense. And the person seems to have a don't care attitude, especially after like a stressor. I want you to think of conversion disorder. I want you to think of conversion disorder on an MBM exam. Now, question 66 is not a question. It's just me telling you information, right? So MDMA toxicity. Remember, MDMA, it causes people to like dance, 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 right? You know, all these rapes and stuff, right? So you can dance yourself, right, to heat exhaustion, right? So it can present as hyperthermia. On an exam. Also, if you dance so much, let's say you dance for like six, seven hours, that's like running a mini marathon, right? Your muscles are going to start breaking down. 
those muscles as they break down, the myoglobin will torture your kidneys, right? So basically, I'm just showing you all the ways MDMA can be tested on your exam, right? It can present as rhabdomyolysis on your test, right? MDMA, remember, we talked about this yesterday. It causes psychogenic polydipsia, right? It causes people to drink tons of fluid, tons of fluid. So you can drink yourself to hyponatremia, right? So they can have hyponatremic seizures on an MDMA exam. MDMA also contains serotonin, right? It's a serotonergic agent. It can activate some serotonin receptors. So they can give you a serotonin syndrome question in the setting of MDMA toxicity. These are all presentations that are popped up on MDMA exams. Definitely keep this in mind if I were you. Now, question 67 says, nystagmus, violence towards others, myoclonus, right? We see myoclonus, right? But this person has nystagmus. That's a key thing here. This person has nystagmus, right? This is PCP intoxication. Once you see nystagmus, drug of abuse situation, that's going to be PCP intoxication on your exam. Okay? That's going to be PCP intoxication on your exam. Okay. So let's erase this and move on. Oh. <clears throat> So question 68 says, meiosis, uh-huh. bradycardia, respiratory rate of 4. Talked about this early today, right? right. This person has opioid uh, okay, overdose, right? So the intoxication is with opioids, right? Now, opioid withdrawal, is opioid withdrawal fatal? It's not fatal. It just sucks, but it's not fatal, right? Right? It's not fatal, right? It is not fatal, <laughs> And typically, if a person is intoxicated with opioids, we're going to give them naloxone, right? As we discussed this morning, so that they don't, they don't, you know, go into complete respiratory failure and die, right? So, how do we treat opioid intoxication? So uh, pretty much answered that already. We're going to give naloxone. Opioid withdrawal is fatal. I mean, it's not fatal. It is not fatal. These people they tend to have all these hyperadrenergic symptoms, right? So, how can we dumb down the adrenergic system? We do that with an alpha-2 mm-hmm. agonist like clonidine. Clonidine is the drug of choice yeah. for treating opioid withdrawal. It's the drug of choice for treating, although you don't have to, but it's a drug of choice for opioid withdrawal. Right? And then, remember what we said. Uh, and actually, let me say one more thing. If a person chronically wants to stop using opioids, what kinds of drugs can we place them on? Remember, we can place these people on drugs like methadone, right? We can place them on drugs like buprenorphine, right? We can place them on drugs like methadone or buprenorphine, right? Methadone or buprenorphine. Now, how about cogwheeling and e-kinesia after use? We talked about this yesterday, right? Again, if you're not like Walter White and you're terrible at cooking opioids, right? You can have MPTP toxicity. MPTP Toxicity, right? MPTP toxicity. And it can cause permanent Parkinsonism. Now, question 69 says, pressured speech, tachycardia, mydriasis, and hypertension, right? So, again, we've talked about this earlier today. I'm just talking about it again since we're inside, right? This is cocaine intoxication, right? And again, common question I get from med students, oh, divine, how do I differentiate cocaine intoxication? From meth intoxication. We talked about it this morning, but again, I'm just different format. 
right? Remember, meth, methamphetamine intoxication, right? Presents with prominent hallucinations. Those people have prominent hallucinations in the question. They'll have prominent hallucinations in the question. Now, question 70 says tachycardia, conjunctival injection, increased appetite, and reduced reaction time, right? So see this person, they have conjunctival injection, they are hungry, right? This person has marijuana intoxication. Marijuana intoxication. The next few questions are marijuana related, right? Again, I'll just see this. For those of you that are applying to residency this year, right? The moment you, if you're a person that uses marijuana, I will strongly encourage you. Like, just in general, you're setting yourself up for a very tough situation, right? If you're a marijuana person. Marijuana is legal in many states, but not at the federal level. I've seen people, right? Because I work with students. I work with people, you know, that are trying to get into residence. I've seen people. They, they marched into a residence, Right? And then the moment NRMP sends you that you've matched, right, you'll find out exactly where you're going. Usually within a week of that, most residency programs want you to go for a drug test. If the marijuana is positive, that goes the person's medical career. They will just basically take their, take this, the spot that they've given you away from you. They have every right to do that. So again, just be wise. You've worked for this thing for years, right? Just be wise, right? Again, I could literally give like a, a seminar on the crazy things people okay, so do that keeps them from residency, it. right? But again, you, you've got to be wise. You've got to be wise with that stuff. Okay. So, marijuana intoxication, again, and for this, you just do supportive care. There's nothing special you need to do treatment-wise. Now, 71 says, cyclical recurrent nausea vomiting and colicky abdominal pain. Remember, there is this thing called cyclical vomiting syndrome. Cyclical vomiting syndrome associated with using marijuana right and again remember marijuana reduces your reaction time that's why people that are intoxicated with marijuana they tend to get in many accidents in fact our friends at the mbme have been known to write questions where they talk about a person that is marijuana intoxicated and they get in an accident and they see what's the most likely mechanism or most likely reason for this person's accident right and the answer choice the right answer is a reduced reaction time right they cannot react their senses are very dull they're not able to react as quickly as they should now cancer related cachexia treatment remember this marijuana derivative dronabinol dronabinol right it's a synthetic cannabinoid can be used for cancer related cachexia although it does not improve survival at all right remember some other things you can use for cancer cachexia i think it's like magistral it's a progesterone analog Right? Or you can just use straight up steroids. Now, question 73 says post surgical diaphoresis, tachycardia, visual hallucinations, and tonic clonic seizures. Right? And it's usually orthopedic surgery on the exam. So that means person was in an accident. Well, why did they get in an accident? Well, they were drunk. That's what happened. Right? So now they've been in a controlled hospital setting where they have diaphoresis, they're sweating, blah, 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 blah. Right? This person has delirium tremens. This is alcohol withdrawal, right? This person is in delirium tremens, right? We're going to give these people a benzodiazepine, right? If not, they will die, right? So you need to give them a benzo. You need to give them a benzo. Now, question 74 says, nystagmus, get ataxia, and confusion, right? Nystagmus, get ataxia, 
and confusion. Nystagmus giddy taxia and confusion. So if you see this triad, right? This person has eye problems, right? They have ataxia and they are confused, right? This is Wernicke's. Right? This person has... Wernicke's. Oh, so what's the neuroanatomical association for Wernicke's? What part right. of the brain is destroyed? Remember, these people have hemorrhagic infarctions. Hemorrhagic infarctions, right? Of a part of the brain called the mammillary bodies. That part of the brain apparently uses a lot of vitamin B1, right? So if you have a vitamin B1 deficiency, right? That part of the brain is not going to work very well. And I'm going to generate enough energy and it'll begin to get destroyed. Now, the enzyme association here, the primary reason people believe that Wernicke's happens is because of transketolase dysfunction. Transketolase dysfunction. Many of us remember transketolase from step one, right? If you remember the pentose phosphate pathway, right? That's also called the, <coughs> the hexose monophosphate shunt. That pathway. Um, the non-oxidative phase, the red-limiting enzyme, is transketolase. So how do we treat this? We're going to give IV thiamine, right? Remember, again, thiamine is vitamin B1. Vitamin B1. Now, what's the irreversible progression of this disorder, right? How can this progress irreversibly? Well, that's going to be Korsakoff's psychosis. So what's the thing that buys you a diagnosis of Korsakoff's? Well, the thing that buys you that diagnosis is if you have confabulations, right? So you're beginning to make stuff up, right? You say, oh, I met you two years ago. You've never seen me before, right? Oh, divine, I know you from Nigeria. You've never seen me before, right? That's a confabulation. And also the person has amnesia, right? They're forgetting things, right? That's, that's Korsakoff's psychosis. Now, how do we treat alcohol use disorder? How do we help people you know, stop drinking? Well... We can give them naltrexone, right? You can give them naltrexone. Another drug you can use on MBME exams is acamprosite, right? So naltrexone and acamprosite, or I mean naltrexone or acamprosite. Right? Now question 76 says we have an 82-year-old female that is pulling IVs, right? And attempting to get out of bed, right? She's pulling IVs from everywhere. She's attempting to get out of bed. If you see stuff like this, right? How do you think about delirium? Okay. Right? That's what I mean by OOB, out of bed. Right? So what's the agent that loves to induce the delirium on MBMA exams, right? These are going to be anticholinergic agents, right? So they can tell you, oh, mom took uh, over-the-counter, grandma took over-the-counter cold medicine, like Benadryl, right? Bifenhydramine. It's a powerful anticholinergic agent, right? It can trigger delirious symptoms. Now, how do we treat delirium? The drug of choice for delirium is an antipsychotic. The drug of choice for delirium is an antipsychotic, right? It's an antipsychotic. Now, how do we not treat delirium? The way we don't treat delirium, right, is never give a benzo. Right? Benzodiazepines, they can paradoxically worsen a person's delirium, right? So we don't give benzos at all for delirium. Right? The only thing that we give benzos for that has delirium means is delirium tremens. That's it. Right? And that's alcohol withdrawal, basically. Right? Now, question 77 and 78 says, progressively forgetful, and this person has problems with activities of daily living. Okay. So what kind of dementia does this person have? This person has Alzheimer's dementia. Right? Alzheimer's dementia. Right? Now, 
what is the big thing I want to keep in mind with future planning for a person with Alzheimer's? Remember, these people, before they become fully demented, you want to have like an advanced directive or a living will, right? You want to have those things squared away. Now, one thing that's high yield to know is that people that have Alzheimer's, they tend to have low levels of acetylcholine, right? They tend to have low levels of acetylcholine. So why do they have low levels of acetylcholine? Again, what's the neuroanatomical relationship? It must make sense then that the part of the brain that makes acetylcholine is gone in Alzheimer's, right? That's the basal nucleus of minors, right? The basal nucleus of minors, the basal nucleus of minors, right? Is destroyed in Alzheimer's. So they're not making acetylcholine. So now that we know that, we then ask ourselves, okay, so how can we treat Alzheimer's? How can we treat Alzheimer's? Uh-huh. If you think about it, so it makes sense that you maybe want to use an acetylcholinesterase inhibitor because that will build up your levels of acetylcholine, right? You want to use an acetylcholinesterase inhibitor because by building up your levels of acetylcholine, you can relieve some of those symptoms, right? So for Alzheimer's, we use three specific acetylcholinesterase inhibitors on MDMA exams, right? So what are those drugs? Well, we have drugs like donepezil, donepezil, right? Another classic one is galantamine. Galantamine. Another classic one is rivastigmine. Rivastigmine, right? So donepezil, galantamine, and rivastigmine, right? Now, next one here says dementia plus constantly added neurodeficits, right? So you notice that this person seems to have like one year, one new neurodeficit. One year, one new neurodeficit. If you see this, this is vascular dementia. This is the second most common cause of dementia. Okay. Now, 79 says, poor language, lack of inhibition, sexually suggestive comments, Ooh. right? This person says very inappropriate things, right? This is easy, right? This is frontal temporal dementia. This person has frontal temporal dementia. Frontal temporal Dementia. Now, question E says abnormal gait. Remember, sometimes they call this Pick's disease. Pick's disease. Now, question E says abnormal gait and urinary incontinence. Right. So they have dementia, but then they are like wacky, wet, and wobbly. Right. They have abnormal gait, urinary incontinence. If you see this, right, I hope you're saying, "Oh, divine, this is normal pressure hydrocephalus. This is normal pressure." Hydrocephalus, normal pressure hydrocephalus, right? Normal pressure hydrocephalus. Now, it's actually very high yield to know that this is an example of a communicating hydrocephalus. Communicating hydrocephalus. So there is no real obstruction, right? It's just that the arachnoid granulations work very well, right? So the problem is at the level of the arachnoid granulations. The problem is at the level of the arachnoid granulations. It doesn't work very well. That's why those people are in trouble, right? Another thing that is a non-communicating hydrocephalus in exams is a pseudotumor cerebri. Pseudotumor cerebri is another high-yield example of a communicating hydrocephalus, right? And usually these people, the way we're going to treat them, is we're just going to place a VP shunt, right? We're going to place a shunt. To drink that CSF, right? It's one of those potentially reversible causes of dementia. 
Now, question 8182 says, recurring nightmares six weeks after being fired from an ED nurse role in a COVID unit, right? So we're seeing this person yeah, having flashbacks, nightmares after a traumatic event, right? I want you to think about PTSD, right? This person has PTSD. So how do we treat PTSD? Remember, PTSD first line is an SSRI. We've talked about this already. Now, what's the REM sleep problem you get in PTSD? It's even in the question, right? These people tend to get nightmares. And the way we treat these nightmares is with prazosin. No one really knows why that helps. But it's something you definitely want to know. They love to test this, again, as military questions, right? As military questions. I literally just heard from someone that uh, took the exam today, right? Mm -hmm. And they got quite a number of military questions uh, on their test, right? So uh, if you listen to my website, again, we've also talked about quite a number of those military things here. But again, to rehash it again, you can say, oh, let me listen to episode 3797, right? On the military. No, it's not. Sorry. It's 204-231 on the military. 204-231 on the military, right? That can help you for, for your exam. Okay. Like Larry, present to your test like Larry today. Okay. Now, prazosin is an alpha-1 blocker, right? It's an alpha-1 blocker, right? That is used to treat uh, used to treat uh, uh, nightmares. Now, question 83 says, intrusive thoughts about killing a friend, right? So you have these intrusive thoughts. This is repetitive activity. So let's say, to leave the anxiety with those thoughts, you have to open and close the door 50 times each time, right? This person has OCD, right? This person has OCD, right? This person has OCD. So how do we treat OCD? Talked about this. Remember, first line is an SSRI, right? First line for OCD is an SSRI. First line for OCD is an SSRI, right? But what is the CBT that we can use for OCD? Well, the CBT we can use is something called exposure and response prevention. Exposure and response prevention. So you expose them to the thing that triggers their, their irrational behavior, and then you try to get them to not respond. Get, try to get them to choose rational, rational outlets, right? That's exposure and response prevention. Now, question 84 says, feels humiliated and is terrified at the prospect of giving speeches, right? You know this, right? This is easy, right? This is performance anxiety. Performance anxiety, right? Sometimes you may see this called stage fright. Right? So what's first line for treating this stuff? What is first line? Remember, it's going to be propranolol. Propranolol is first line. Second line is a benzo. Right? But we know that if a person, for example, a person, for example, has a history of like reactive airway disease, like really bad asthma, really bad COPD, then you're not going to be giving propranolol, right? We're going to give those people a benzodiazepine, right? We're not going to be doing propranolol. We're going to be giving a benzodiazepine. Okay. So let's still have a few minutes before I take questions. It's this. It's like most people are like, ah, the mind is too easy. That's okay. Don't worry. We are almost done. But I'll take questions first and then we'll finish up. But let me, let me, let's work till 6.50 Pacific. So question 85 says, poor sleep, restless, impaired concentration. And on physical exams, person has high muscle tension. And let's say they've had this for more than six months, right? Remember, this is generalized anxiety disorder, right? This is generalized anxiety disorder. And remember, in GAD, 
these people, right, generalized anxiety disorder, these people, first-line treatment is going to be an SSRI, right? It's going to be an SSRI. Now, question 86 says, choking feeling, hot flashes, sweating, palpitations, mm-hmm. just going crazy, right? Worried about future issues. Right? You see so stuff much. like this. Yep. I want you to think about this person having, right, up. panic disorder, right? Whenever you see a person have a panic attack, and then they are worried about having a new panic attack, right? That's panic disorder. And how do we treat panic disorder? The first line drug for treating panic disorder, believe it or not, is an SSRI. SSRIs are first line for treating panic disorder. Now, major depressive disorder, what's the monoamine hypothesis? What is the monoamine hypothesis as a major depressive disorder? Remember, people that are depressed, they tend to have low levels of serotonin, that's what 5-HT means, norepinephrine, and dopamine. They tend to have low levels of serotonin, norepinephrine, and dopamine, right? Now, one unusual question our friends at the end may love to ask is, oh, what is the most likely finding in these people's adrenal axis? Well, these people are stressed, right? If you're stressed, what's going to be true of your cortisol is going to be high. So these people tend to have elevated levels of cortisol, especially in their CSF, right? Now, what is the fastest or the most effective treatment for, for MDD? It's actually electroconvulsive therapy, right? It's actually electroconvulsive therapy. Now, question 88 says schizophrenia neuroanatomy, right? So remember, schizophrenia, mm-hmm. the big thing you want to know is that these people have enlargement of their ventricles. They have enlargement of their ventricles, especially the lateral and the third ventricles, the lateral and the third ventricles. So what are the timelines to know? Well, remember, you can have disease. You can hear voices for less than a month, for one to six months, right? Or for greater than six months. If it's greater than six months, that's full-blown schizophrenia, right? If it's greater than six months, that's full-blown schizophrenia. But if it's one to six months, that is schizophreniform. That is schizophreniform, right? If it's less than a month, that's brief psychotic disorder. That is brief psychotic disorder. Brief psychotic disorder. Okay. Now, what is the drug of abuse with early onset schizophrenia? Right? This is marijuana. This is something they still test to this day on MBME exams. In fact, it's been making a comeback in recent times. Now, question 89. I have two questions 89. So let's do the first one and then I'll take questions. So what is the most predictive factor in completing suicide? Right? This is a prior history of attempt. If you've tried before, you will probably try again. So prior history of attempt. Right? Now, who attempts more? It's going to be women. Right? Women try to kill themselves more. But who is more successful? It's going to be men. Right? So remember, men, they tend to use more lethal methods. Right? Men tend to use more lethal methods. Men tend to use more lethal methods. Okay. So let me take people's questions, and then uh, we'll finish up the remaining questions, and then we'll be done.